Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the very first Psalm, Psalm 1, Psalm 1. And as you're doing that, I want to remind you of something, that you and I are in the process of building a spiritual legacy. It has been a burden of my heart to somehow convey to you the urgency of understanding this concept that all of us are in the process of developing a spiritual legacy. We're doing it personally. We're doing it in our families. We're doing it in our church. We're doing it as a nation. We're developing a understanding as to what we will look like 40 years from now, or 50 years from now, or 100 years from now. What will this church look like? What will be preached from behind this pulpit? Will the young people, 40 years from now, have the same urgency, the same love for the Lord that our young people do today? Or will they have been so enculturated like frogs in a kettle that they will have lost their passion? Will we be like the Ephesian church that lost its first love, where we begin to focus on things that do not matter? What kind of legacy will you leave in your home? What will your children embrace? What kind of marriages will they have? I've always said, I believe it with all my heart, you really do not know how successful you have been as a parent until you see what kind of children your children raise. You see, that's when the legacy is really beginning to carry on. That's when we're finding the first fruits. It's not just in your children, it's in your grandchildren. It's in what kind of children they become and what kind of families they they create. And so I've entitled this series, this brand new series on the book of the Psalms, Building a Spiritual Legacy. And over the uh, next few months, we are going to select, I am going to select certain Psalms that are going to raise certain questions that we need to answer concerning what it means to build that spiritual legacy. And we're going to use the Psalms in order to accomplish that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of the uh, 19th century, uh, Charles Spurgeon called the Psalms the treasury of David. A treasury is a place where riches are kept. The Psalms are particularly appropriate for our day because they are the worship songs of the Bible. If you want to know what the worship book of worship looked like in the Bible, open up the book of Psalms. That's exactly what it was. The Psalms relate the experiences of believers in the past. It reflects their emotional upsets, their problems, the disturbances with which the saints of old came to worship, their pain and their heartache that they went through. The Psalms tell us how these saints of old found their way through, and they are wonderful. 
They are wonderful testimonies to us and therefore they are helpful as we walk through some of the various emotional pressures that we experience. There is no book that is quite like the Psalms that meets the need of the heart when the heart is discouraged and when the heart is defeated or when the heart is elated and the heart is encouraged. We express certain emotional feelings, and because of that, in worship, this book is without its peer. The book of the Psalms, David wrote most of the Psalms, was written for the purpose of worship. Now, some of the Psalms were written by David's choir masters. See, David had various choirs, and there were choir masters over these choirs. And so some of the Psalms were written by Asaph, one of the choir directors. Some of the psalms were written by Jeduthun. Some of the psalms were written by Ethan. Some of the psalms were written by other royal choir masters, Moses and Solomon. Each wrote two of the psalms. The whole book is a collection that has been put together by the ancient Hebrews in order that we might understand what the people of God have gone through and how they found their way out. Many of the Psalms open with tremendous despair, questions that are raised to God. Why, Lord, this and why, Lord, that? And and the Psalms just seem to vent the soul. The soul seems to be in despair, but they never end there. They always have resolution, or at least most times, they have resolution as the worshiper takes his burden before God and then is allowed to experience the grace of God in answering. You see, many of the Psalms, just like our hymns today, were at first personal expressions that eventually became expressions of the corporate community, expressions even of the nation. The Psalms evolved Just like today, we would look at certain hymns. For example, It Is Well With My Soul. How often have we sung that song written by Horatio Spafford? And how many of us, every time we we sing that song, how many times do we recall the story that we have been told about the pain that served as the backdrop for that song? Horatio Spafford, who lost a large chunk of his family in a tragic maritime disaster, wrote that song, wrote that hymn. And when we read that, when we read the words, when he speaks of it as well with my soul, when we look at the language of the hymn itself, we begin to experience the pain of an individual. And corporately, we can plug in our own pain. We can plug in our own individual suffering and grief. Many of our hymns were written against the backdrop of intense personal pain, those hymns became corporate celebrations. We sing them a lot. How many times have you been caught up as we sing a certain song? Suddenly the words just hit you. Something said in the psalm, something said in the hymn just strikes you. And you're caught in that spirit and you realize this is personal. God is engaging you. And you are being engaged by God. Now, the Psalms, the whole book of the Psalms is really five books. The first Psalm is the preface. 
The first psalm serves as the grid through all the, through all the other psalms. It's the grid through which we are able to interpret the other five books. The psalms are really, as I said, five books, and they correspond in theme to the first five books of the Bible. When you look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you have five very specific themes in those books that are paralleled by the themes of the various books of the Psalms. Let me see if I can explain this to you. The first Psalm, or the first book of the Psalms, actually starts with chapter 2, Psalm 2, and goes all the way through Psalm 41. And so when you pick up any psalm between Psalm 2 and Psalm 41, generally speaking, this is a book that parallels the book of Genesis. The themes of Genesis will be found in the first book of the psalms, in the themes that are are expressed all the way through Psalm 41. They express the origins, if you will, to human life, the revelation of the needs of the human heart, It is the book of foundations. It is the book of firsts. It is the book of creation, if you will. And as we read the Psalm, Psalm 2 through 41, we see those Genesis themes repeated. The second book of the Psalms begins with Psalm 42 and runs all the way through Psalm 72. So if you're picking up your Bible and you're reading one of those Psalms, these in theme correspond to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we have the theme of redemption, the story of God's moving in human history to change and to redeem people and to save them from themselves. You'll find that theme of redemption in the second book of the Psalms. The third book of the Psalms begins with Psalm 73, and it goes all the way through Psalm 89. This parallels the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, of course, is the book in which Israel learned how to draw near to God, how to worship him through the provisions that God made, the rules, if you will, of engaging God and being engaged by God in worship, the rules of the tabernacle. You'll see those themes repeated in the third book of the Psalms. And then we have Psalm 90 through Psalm 106, and that constitutes the fourth book. And that goes along with the book of Numbers. And in the book of Numbers, we have the story of wandering, the story of wilderness, the story of testing and failure, the cry of the human heart. And finally, the fifth book covers Psalm 107 through Psalm 150, and I parallel that to the book of Deuteronomy, the second law. That is the law of the spirit of life that we have in Jesus Christ. The law that, 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 that spirit that sets us free from the law of sin and death. It describes the way by which God finally accomplishes redemption and the sanctification of his people. The changing, if you will, of human beings into the kind of men and the kind of women God originally intended him to be, them to be. Additionally, There are different genres of psalms. And when you understand what the genre is, you catch the spirit of the theme of that particular psalm. The genres, if you will, represent the different needs that brought the people of God to worship. Every single one of you have different needs, don't you? Some of you are grieving. Others are not. 
For some of you, life is hunky-dory. Everything's going well. You're between battles, if you will. You're in a respite. All is good. There are no crises in your life. Your job is secure. Your family's doing well. You love your church. Your health is good. And so for no other reason, you have come simply to praise God and to thank God for the blessings that he's given you. For others, you're grieving. You come in great pain. Or you've suffered some sort of loss. And so you come with a different mindset. You come hurting, struggling, and you're looking for hope. You're looking for that miracle in your life. You're looking for God to do something unusual so that he can speak to you in a way that he's never spoken to you before. Some of you come here with broken bodies, broken spirits, broken hearts. Some of you come here for reasons where you, if we're asked, would not be able to explain. You just say, I don't know what's going on in my life. Some of you have chronic testing, some physical testing, chronic pain, chronic emotional distress, and on and on we go. Family needs. Every single one of you comes to corporate worship with the backdrop of your own personal experience. That's what the Psalms are. That's what the Psalms tell us. For example, when we read Psalm 34, where uh, uh, the, the cry of the soul is the Lord encamps around about those who fear him, and the Lord delivers them from all their fears. When we read that psalm, we are against the backdrop of King David playing the role of the madman. Remember that story? Where David was fearful for his life, and so he pretended to be insane? Well, that psalm was written against the backdrop of that fear in David's heart. So when we read Psalm 34, we read it through that genre. We read it through that grid, if you will. Tremper Longman, who wrote an interesting book, refers to the Psalms as the cry of the soul. I think he's got it. I think that's a good way to express what the Psalms are. They are the cry of the soul. And so we have psalms that are hymns. We have psalms that are hymns of thanksgiving, psalms that are personal laments, psalms that are corporate laments that may have started out as personal laments, psalms of trust, the royal psalms that speak of God's kingship, the messianic psalms that point us to the coming Savior. You can't read Psalm 22. Psalm 23 and Psalm 24 without seeing the Messiah. When you see that trilogy of Psalms, you have a picture, a telescope, if you will, that points you to Messiah. We all have our personal backdrops. The very fact that so many of the personal Psalms became corporate Psalms demonstrates that when we worship, as we worship, as your children worship beside you, as you teach them, as they learn through the preaching of the word, as they learn through corporate worship, against that backdrop, what you are doing is building a legacy. You're teaching your children what it means to trust God. 
That's what the Psalms are. That was Israel's directory of worship. There are some congregations today, when they sing, will sing only the Psalms. They actually put the Psalms to music. Now, I want to give you my personal backdrop so that you understand specifically where I am coming from. Some time ago, I was driving with my wife, and we were uh, just, whenever we go away, we try to assess. We try to spend some time assessing where are we, where do we need to be, how did we get here, and how do we need to get to where we need to be. And so we'll spend some time, you know, talking that through. And as we were driving uh, on a, about a three, four-hour trip, I began to raise the question, Sharon did as well, is what do we want? If we could just bring all of our grandchildren in, and there's 10 of them and one on the way, if we could bring those grandchildren in and wave some sort of magic wand over them, and they would immediately, by that magic wand, instantaneously get what we're trying to say to them, what would we want to say to them? What are the key values that we attempted to teach their parents that we want to ensure they get? I want to know that my children and my grandchildren will stand and call the Lord blessed. And so there's a series of principles that I believe are spelled out in the context of worship. That's why in our church we have a vision statement. And in that vision statement, we say that worship is the defining event in the life of the church. What we do here leaves its fingerprints over everything else that we do. And so because of that, in worship, which is supposed to be dynamic, it's supposed to be God engaging us, and we are supposed to be engaging God. That dynamic uh, relationship, that give and that take as we engage God and are engaged by him, is supposed to become contagious in our children. And so generations from now, will our church have unity? You know, for 20 years we've been in existence in this church. There has never been, never, ever been in 20 years any serious division in this church. Do you know how much of a gift that is? There are people right now in churches that dread going to church. They dread it. They don't want to be around the other people. How do you worship in that context? How do you worship when you hate the very people you're worshiping with? You know what a gift unity is? Will our church have that unity? Will our children learn how to resolve conflicts biblically? What will the preacher be like 40 years from now? What will our young people be like? How much of an outreach will we have had? How effective will our church be? All of that's tied in with the concept of legacy. But you know what I've preached for years? The legacy of the church is only as strong as the legacy of the homes that make up that church. So if you're weak, we're weak. If your homes are weak, we're weak. If you're struggling in the context of your own legacy, then we're going to struggle in the context of legacy. You see, there is no magic wand. I wish there were, but there isn't. Instead, we learn this dynamic as we learn to worship our God. You see, that to me is what the book of Psalms is all about. So I ask, what do I hope and pray my grandchildren will embrace 
as their spiritual legacy handed down from their grandparents through their parents and hopefully from them to their children. And in order to do that, I raise a series of questions that I see being raised in the Psalms. So each week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to deal with one specific psalm. It's actually going to take two weeks to deal with each of these psalms. We're not going to go through all 150 psalms. Uh, we just couldn't do that. But I am going to select key psalms that I believe answer the various questions of legacy building. The very first one is Psalm 1. I hope you have it by now. Let me tell you what the question answered is. Let me raise the principle and hopefully then spell it out for you as we open the psalm. When I talk about legacy, there's no better place to begin than Psalm 1. Psalm 1, as I said earlier, is the preface. It's kind of the overarching. It's the tenth psalm, if you will, under which all the other psalms fall. Psalm 1 becomes a grid and you can take Psalm 2 through Psalm 150, and you can filter it through the grid of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a statement. It's a declaration, and Psalm 2 through 150 is the proof of that declaration. And now here's the point. Here's the principle, the first principle of legacy building. I want my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to understand this principle. You cannot play chess with the devil. You cannot play chess with the devil. Psalm 1 starts out with, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Now you'll notice there's no title to this psalm. It's the forward of the entire book. And it is the grid through which we are to read the other Psalms. And here is the basic principle of Psalm 1. Only the just, only the just can truly be blessed of God. The just is simply another word for the saved. We are not inherently just. We must be made just. We are not inherently righteous. We must be made righteous. The only way in which we become just is through faith in Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, then, it amounts to this. As we read the Psalms, and it speaks about the just and the unjust, the wicked and the, and, and, and the, and the saints, when it speaks of the, the, the saved and the lost, it's referring to the Christian and the non-Christian. You're one of two things. You're either a Christian and thus just, justified. You're either a child of God and thus made just, or you are not. And if you are not, the Bible refers to you as wicked. Now, people don't like to hear that because there are a lot of wicked or lost people whose lifestyles do not look wicked. They do good things. They're philanthropers. They are good family people. And on and on the list could go. But now in the Scheme of things, that is, in terms of where they will spend eternity, none of those things that make them good in the eyes of men will be good enough to make them just. Thus, they are called in scriptures the unjust or the unjustified. So when we read Psalm 1 and he says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel 
of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. It's referring to the just man, because he'll tell us that later in the passage. It points us to the hope of some incredible promises and the dreadful end of wickedness. Notice the first word, blessed, it's in the plural. It means many and varied blessings promised to the just. And doesn't it sound familiar to you? The constitution of the directory of worship is now opening. Psalm 1 is the preface that gives you the scheme of the whole book, and it starts out with the word blessed. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like when Jesus stood and gave us the constitution of the New Testament, he stood there in that great sermon on the mount, and how did that sermon start? Blessed, 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 blessed. The Eightfold Beatitudes, the very first words, the public declaration of the, of the, of the vision of the New Testament people, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, I want you to notice the word and the progression here. Watch this progression. The man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, how do we walk? We walk one step at a time, don't we? You put your right foot out, you put your left foot out. You, and then you repeat that process. You're moving by walking in a certain direction. So when the Bible refers to the walk of man, it's talking about the direction or the course of his life. There's two courses you can take in life. The course of the just man, the course of the wicked man, the course of the saved, the course of the lost. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. If you walk in the counsel of the wicked, you are wicked. If your steps are taking you in the same direction they are going, you are just like them. And so if you walk in wickedness, you are wicked. If you walk like the just, if you walk like a saved man, a man who's been made righteous, you are righteous. The just man, secondly, does not stand Notice the words now changed from walking to standing because he does not stand in the way of sinners. You know, the word stand there means to take your stand. It means to come alongside of. It's a word of intimacy. Here is a man who starts out by walking in the direction that the wicked man is walking, but he's going to arrive at a certain point where he stands there by the wicked man and puts his arm around him and says, you and I are now intimate. You and I are now one. You and I have the same position. You and I now have the same worldview. So he starts out by walking. Now he's taking his stand. But you'll notice that he walks then he stands, and then thirdly, what does he do? He sits in the seat of the mocker. So he's moving in that direction. He embraces that lifestyle, and then he looks back, and he begins to mock 
where he used to be. We see this all the time with young people, don't we? How often have you heard this story? I was raised in a Christian home. You know what's coming next, don't you? I was raised in a Christian home, then I got involved with the wrong crowd. And eventually I grew to reject everything my parents and my church taught me. I got into all kinds of trouble, became a drug addict, got pregnant, did this, did that, did the other thing. Their life got all messed up. Now I've returned to Jesus and all is well. We hear that testimony again and again. The warning of the psalm is, this is a progression. This starts all the way back, and we'll talk practically next time we're together about how this starts, because I think there's culpability on the part of us parents, just as there's culpability on the part of the kid. But we get to a point where we, we start walking, and then we stand, and then we sit, and then we look back, and we mock. That's the progression. The just man does not do that. He does not sit. He does not walk. He does not stand. He does not embrace the lifestyle of the wicked. And this is the end of the unjust. You see, the unjust man who does all these things is a plague of pus who is filled with hatred for all that is good. Wrong is then called right. Evil is called good. Values go out the window. They refuse to even see mercy when it comes. I will never forget two very graphic sights that I saw during that massive hurricane in the Gulf Coast called Katrina. With all the other images that I saw on TV, and some of us became TV junkies watching because we just couldn't believe what we were watching. Two very specific and pointed images are in my mind, and I'll never forget them. The first one was the day before the hurricane hit. There was this big sign. Maybe you saw it. The big sign. It had these words on it facing the ocean. Lord, have mercy on us. That's one image. The second image is after the storm hit of a camera crew that went into a bar on, bar on Bourbon Street, Sin City of the South. And they were interviewing this bartender who was telling graphically how he flushed various human refuse down the toilet with big barrels of beer. And he was very proud that he had that beer. He said we would drink some of it and then we would we would take the rest, and that became our source of, of sanitation. But then he made this incredible statement. He looked the camera straight in the eye. And these were his exact words, because I wrote them down. He said, and these were his words, he looked the camera, he looked America straight in the eye, and he said, the debauchery of New Orleans lives. We will be back, and we will be drunk. You can't even... See mercy when mercy comes. You can't even see it when you've come there to embrace and to scorn and to mock. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. This is the just man. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Let me tell you something. The character of a man or a woman is characterized in this verse by two very specific qualities. The character of a just man you want to know if you're just? 
You want to know if you're truly in Christ? Here's two things. The first thing you look at, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Here is the first time the great and awesome and incommunicable name of God is spoken in the Psalms. The name Jehovah, Yahweh, the name of the covenant God, the name of the God that is reflective of his character and his nature. And he says, blessed is that man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, the law of the Lord is the revelation of God. It's what God has revealed to us. Here is the law of the Lord. Now, when the psalmist wrote the law, when he wrote that verse, the law of the Lord was the first five books of the Bible. That was the Pentateuch. That was the scripture. His delight was in that law. He loved the moral law of God. He loves the revelation of God. He loves the character of God. He is not at all. He is not at all turned off by the law. He doesn't hate the law because the law is not the enemy. The standards God has raised, that's not the enemy. The enemy is within that hates that law. But the just man loves that law. He loves the law of God. A good man, a just man, a justified man loves the moral law of God because the moral law of God is the badge of the character of God. And he wants to grow closer to that God and understand more of what that character is. And so he loves the law. Now the law condemns us because the law is perfect and we are imperfect. But when we come to faith in Christ, that law is the badge of God's character and we grow to love it because we love God. Romans chapter 7 tells us that the unjust man does not love the law of God. His inner man is repulsed by the law of God. He scorns the law of God. He rejects the law of God. The scorner of scripture, the one who refuses to love this book, the inner man of that unjust man hates this book. It repulses him because it condemns and convicts him. But the just man, he loves this book. He loves the law. The child of God delights in studying the scriptures. But the child of God, secondly, is characterized by these words. On this law, he meditates day and night. Just like his prayer life, where we are commanded in Scripture to pray without ceasing. The dynamic of a two-way communication is a part of his life. It's part of his inner man. It's who he is. It's as he prays to God and communes that way, by praying to God and worshiping God, by the, by the character of his life, then God speaks back through his word. God opens the scriptures for us to understand. He enlightens the mind and we begin to understand the deep truths of God. So we pray and we worship and we meditate on the law of God and God begins to open up our minds to see truth that we didn't see before.
And he loves that. The just man loves that kind of insight, that kind of revelation. You see, without this kind of meditation, grace can never be understood. Our prayer life becomes lifeless. Our worship flies into thin air. And our works become like dung. You see, meditation, just like prayer, is the constant of the just man's life. The just man naturally loves the scriptures, and they inform his actions, they inform his thoughts. He does not act without the constant and the discipline of meditation and prayer. And to that man, to that woman, God makes certain promises. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. You see, in hot eastern countries, trees flourished when planted by the water. The interesting thing about that verse to me, if you underline the word streams of water, the word speaks of artificial streams. It speaks of artificial channels. The point being, these are not streams that men create. These are streams that are created by God. God is the one who creates the stream. It's the picture of God making the water, God making the channel, and then the tree gets planted by what God has surrounded that tree with. The planting of the just into the soil of God is not something that is done naturally, and it's not something that's done automatically. It is God who plants the tree. Do you hear what I just said? It is God who plants the tree. No man by nature is a friend of God. No man by nature is a tree of righteousness. We are made friends of God. We become righteous because of what Christ did on the cross for us. You see, we are planted by the streams of living water. When all around us, this picture is one of aridness, dryness, devastation, heat, destruction all around. But there down by the water, there where that tree flourishes is the stream of God, the water, the living water. Now, we know what that living water is because Jesus identified it, didn't he? Didn't he say, I am the living water. I am the bread of God. I am that I am. And when all around us is decaying, burning up, with no sign of life, the tree flourishes. The tree is planted, and it yields its fruit, he says, in season, and its leaf does not wither. Here is the image of fruit on this tree, and it's stunning. You know, if you want to know what an apple tree looks like, its leaves are characteristic. You look at the leaves of a tree, you say, that's an apple tree. You look at the leaves of an orange tree, you say, that's an orange tree. You look at the leaves of a fig tree, you say, that's a fig tree. The leaves, that is what we are outwardly, identifies what we are inwardly. But you know, the leaves are worthless unless that tree produces what? Fruit. Fruit. I have a tree in my backyard. I've had it there for years. One of those Macintosh apple trees, you know, that fall fruit, supposedly it's supposed to be real good. I haven't seen one apple on that tree yet. And what apples I do see on that tree are all shriveled up. They're all wrinkled up, like some of us old people are getting, all wrinkled up. There's no fruit there. Why? Because there's been no pruning. 
There's been no watering. There's been no fertilizing. The root system of that tree must be absolutely horrible. There must be grubs and everything else eating at that tree. You know what it's good for? It's good for what I'm going to do to it in a few days. I'm going to cut it down, and we're going to burn it up. And it's done. It's, this life is over. I am terminating that tree's life. It is over. Why? Because there's no fruit. It's worthless. And it's been worthless for years. Although it looks like an apple tree, smells like an apple tree, stands like an apple tree, there are no apples on that tree. You can look like a Christian, smell like a Christian, talk like a Christian, but if your root system is faulty, there will be no fruit. And the root system is stirred up by meditation in the word. You put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. You feed your mind constantly with God's word. God's word gets inside of you, and all of a sudden you say, I can't remain the same person I was. Something's got to change. Sins become very open. Sins become very obvious. Things that you didn't see in yourself, you suddenly begin to see in yourself. You see, that is the promise to the just man. If you meditate in the word, you will be like that tree that I've planted by the water I've given it. And what you are outside, what you are inside will be made evident by what comes outside. The fruit will become evident because the word will have grounded you and established you. And then whatever he does prospers. Some like to look at that and say, well, that can't possibly mean temporal blessing. But Mark chapter 10 tells us of temporal blessing. We just happen to gain a different perspective on the blessing. You see, in Mark 10, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel. And he will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. And with them, sounds good so far, doesn't it? And with them, persecutions of every kind. God calls that a temporal blessing. You know what he's saying there? Our perspective changes. We develop a spirit of contentedness. We no longer look at the bigger home or the bigger car or the bigger this or the bigger that or this money or that money. Our values change. Our lifestyle, our focus changes. That's what he means when he says, and whatever he does works to his advantage, including, including, Suffering. That is the backdrop of Psalm 1. But there are some very, very practical applications as we finish this the next time we're together. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.